Trinity Harbor Church offers the following audio recording as a ministry without charge or legal restriction. We're located in downtown Rockwall, Texas, serving the greater Northeast Dallas area. For more information, visit us online at trinityharborchurch.com. Our prayer is that by this message, you will encounter the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 21 and chapter 22, or if you prefer to have a Bible, it's in your worship guide as well, printed for you. We're reading two glimpses that God gives us of how He sees the end of His mission occurring, what, what His end game is, so to speak. And we want to learn and shape our participation in His mission by the vision He gives us of where it's going. So if you're able, I'll ask you to stand with me for the reading of God's Word. We'll read chapter 21, verses 1 through 8, and then 22, 1 through 7. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, Their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. And then chapter 22, beginning at verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations, no longer... Will there be anything accursed but the throne of God and of the Lamb of God will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light or lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. The Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. We're concluding today our current sermon series, which was entitled Chosen to be Sent. And all along, we've been asserting that, first of all, God is a missional God. When things go wrong in His creation, when Adam and Eve choose a direction that is in rebellion against Him, God Himself enters in to redeem that situation. He chooses Abraham to put a story in motion that culminates in the coming of Jesus, where God Himself uh, shows up physically as a man to execute salvation and redemption for us. And the mission continues. As we see this morning, it goes beyond that to a new future that is even better than the story where it started. 
And the second thing we've said that if God has granted His love to us, if He's enfolded us in His family, then that is for a purpose. It is not simply to sit and to wait uh, until Jesus returns. It is not to think that um, you know, all our spiritual issues are, are, are dealt with and we simply sit on our hands, but it is to actively participate in what God is doing in this world, which is continuing a mission of redemption around the globe. And if we're not participating in that mission, then we really don't understand the God who has called us to be His. And so to do this, we've gone through our mission statement to evaluate why we hold those as priorities, why that we believe that they're biblical, and what it means for us to participate in each element, and what it looks like when we fail to participate in each element. So we went through our mission, which our mission, Trinity Harbor, is to be transformed by God's grace, to heal the broken, to grow in community, and to establish churches that extend God's kingdom. And so we've been through that whole statement, but there's one thing as we close today that needs to be said, and we must remind ourselves of consistently, which is that our participation in God's mission must be informed by His vision of where it's going. He must set the goals for our mission, and we must always take stock, take bearing, according to His goals, whether our mission is adequately participating with His mission. If we consider mission for a moment, it only takes a moment to realize that life is filled with mission. We're constantly engaged in mission. Uh, choosing a college, going through college and choosing a profession, or participating in a sports event, or finding a spouse, or working and advancing at business, or perhaps even overcoming physical or emotional or psychological pain. These are all missions because mission at its heart is pretty simple. Mission is recognizing where you are, understanding where you want to go, and then being willing to commit yourself to what is necessary to get from point A to point B. That is a mission. God has engaged that mission on our behalf. He has called us to participate in His mission. If we don't, if we're not informed by what God's goals are for our mission, then we are, it's a dangerous place to be. Here's an analogy. Uh, we've been, uh, we, many of you know, this summer we, we moved, we bought a house that was a short sale, and the people who were living in it knew that the house was, um, was, was lost. They weren't able to make payments for the bank for a long time because it took a long time to sell. So they were there about two years, and can you imagine, two years, you know you've lost the house, how many things are you going to be interested in fixing? Or how much time are you going to spend in the yard? Right? Not much, and that's kind of the way it looks. So, Everything in the yard is, is desperately overgrown. And so he said, okay, we're gonna, we're gonna do these front beds. Gotta strip this out. The problem was, so we got in there, we're tearing poison ivy out, vines, fungus, everything is growing in there. And it gets all cleaned out. And then we said, okay, what's next? And Jennifer and I, neither of us having the gift of vision for landscaping, stared at each other. And she said, I don't know. And I said, I don't know either. What do we, where do we go from here? And we didn't go anywhere. And so everything started to grow back. And so eventually Marie Frado, Missy Huntley's mom was over and she's kind of like a female Gary Swearingen. She's got the gift of, and Marie's real sweet because she's just going to tell you what to do and tell you what she thinks. And she doesn't care what you think. And that's exactly what we needed. 
And so she was over, and then, uh, so a vision was given, a goal was set of what the end game was for the front beds. Well, we had been languishing, we didn't know what to do, things were going back. You say, we, we got the chainsaw out, we cleared everything out, we cut bushes in half, we stripped them so much they may never grow back. But we were reinvigorated because we knew where this was going. We know what's coming after we're done in the beds. See, if you don't know where you're going, two things are going to happen. Number one, what happened to us was we just stalled. We were paralyzed because we didn't know where we were actually going. We thought we were on a mission, we were excited, we jumped in, and then we were lost. The other thing that can happen when you jump into a mission but you don't really know the goal is that you can fill it in with something that's ridiculous. Somebody might have said, we don't know what to do. And, you know, on a whim, we could say, let's, let's plant a bunch of bamboo. And that would have grown, and then our whole house would have been a jungle of bamboo in the front, and that would have been a terrible mistake. But sometimes we do that when we're paralyzed. We don't know where we're going. You see, if you're not informed in your mission of life by God's goals, if you don't have that picture, then you have the tendency to, number one, be paralyzed. I don't know what to do. I don't know in what direction to move. Or two, to do something that's foolish. To decide that, oh, I'm going to participate in God's mission by moving into the woods and building a cabin and starting a a closed-off society. That's something that doesn't really fit in with God's vision of where he's going. But we have those two tendencies when we're not informed by his vision of the end game, of what's going to happen. That's when all of his mission comes to a close and the mission is finished and everyone crosses the finish line. And so we need to have a, a, a decent familiarity with that vision that we're given. So let's consider it now as we turn to chapter 21 first in the book of Revelation. John describes what he sees. It's the renewal of heaven and earth. Not necessarily a completely new heaven and earth, but all things are being dramatically renewed. And in verse 1, he says something odd. He says, and the sea will be no more. I don't know about you, but I'm a little bit disappointed. I like the ocean just fine. Why do we need a place without ocean? Well, This really isn't intended to be read quite literally. There may or may not be oceans. I tend to think there will be in glory since God is renewing the earth. But what you have to understand from an ancient perspective, particularly from an ancient Israeli perspective, is the sea was representative of chaos. Right? All the way through the scripture, the sea is often used as a metaphor for what is chaos, that the the world is broken. And for an ancient people, the sea was a scary place. It's a long time before real seafaring will develop in the ancient world. The Israelites were by no means a people of the sea. And so it was this place of darkness. It was this place of unknown. It was a place where a lot of times if you ventured out on it, you didn't come back. And this is what John is beginning by saying, listen, in the renewal of all things, chaos is going to be gone. Right? Even when there's not evil, there's chaos. There's poverty and hunger, and famine, and tsunamis, and cyclones, and earthquakes, and horrible events when biology and people simply goes wrong. Right? That's chaos. You experience it in small ways with the copier, and some of you experience it in large ways. The world is a chaotic place. And right at the outset, John saying, no, in the new heavens and the new earth, chaos is done. There is no more chaos. Everything runs as God intends it. From there, if you go to verse 3, 
You read with me, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. God's vision for the future is even better at creation. For When we read the creation count, we see that God is willing to directly um, uh, connect with, talk with, walk with his people. Right? But it's not the same. We never get a picture of God dwelling with his people right? in a very permanent way. Even when we approach that in the temple in the Old Testament, eventually God's glory was, is withdrawn. And so in the entire story, we're longing for God's presence to be there with His people, for he, that He will be king on the scene. John is saying, yes, this is what's going to occur. The, the alienation that has occurred between God and His people is going to be completely healed and will not happen again, so that God and man will again dwell together for eternity. And with the king on the scene, what is chased away? Beginning in verse 4, we see that God will wipe away every tear. Death shall be no more. There shall be no more mourning, no crying, and no pain. Well, now, how in the world can this be? How is it all simply wiped away? If you look over at chapter 22, verse 3, we're told that no longer will anything be accursed. Do you see? The curse for sin has been lifted. It has finally been removed. And everything that we experience, crying and pain and death, being the result of our sin, being the result of the curse. In Genesis 3, it is gone. It is lifted. Again, we move forward in holiness and beauty unhindered. And then the tree of life. Remember that tree which is when Adam and Eve sin and they're exiled from the garden, humanity loses access to the tree of life having eaten of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And here at the very end of the story, the story comes to its proper completion as we are brought back to the tree of life. And because God has made us right in Jesus Christ, we can now partake of its fruit, and it's a picture of superabundance. Right? It's not one tree, but it's actually two trees. And it's not one kind of fruit, it's twelve kinds of fruit on both trees. Again, not necessarily to be read quite literally, but it's this picture of the healing that is going to occur is going to be much greater and much more profound than the sin and destruction that has occurred previously. Lastly, what is happening at the end of God's mission? We see in 22 that worship is what is happening. The name of our Lord is on our foreheads, meaning that we will be completely and without reservation is His And the long night that began in the garden comes to a close. And there is no more night. This is what God is establishing as the end game for His mission. And this is why we must constantly ask, is our mission as a church? Is your mission in your home? Is your mission at work? Coming into alignment with the mission that God has declared and the place that He is going. We say we are committed to being transformed by God's grace. Why? Because God is. God, in the end, gives us a picture where sin and death are no more because we belong wholly to God. So to the degree that we seek to be transformed by God's grace in the here and now, we anticipate God's future. We participate in His mission. We're committed to healing the broken. Why? Because God is. What does God promise that He will be removed? Crying, mourning, pain, put away permanently. 
And to the extent that we can help others to put away crying and pain and hurt, we participate in God's mission. We anticipate His future. And in the same way that Jesus comes into the present, He brings God's future with Him. Not in totality, but very much the future arrives in the present. And as we continue to engage in mission, we too participate in bringing the future to bear in the present. We're committed to growing in community. Now you might not be able to see this immediately from our passages we consulted in Revelation, but if we were to back up and take a wider view of the book of Revelation as a whole, we would see that God's end game is a community in worship involving all of the nations of the earth together, praising the Lord on the throne. So as we participate in praise and worship as a community, we anticipate that future. Not only that, but we couldn't possibly achieve the goals we set before us without existing in community together. And we say we're committed to establishing churches that extend God's kingdom. Now, we didn't read anything about church planting. So why is this part of our mission statement? Well, it's part of our mission statement because when we do read the end game, God's people are all involved and committed to worship. You don't need to talk about church planting because everyone is worshiping. But right now, everyone is not worshiping. And so we plant churches to try to see more and more people come to bend the knee and confess with their tongue that Jesus Christ is Lord and to worship Him. We engage in mission because worship doesn't exist in certain places. And where worship exists, we continue to move on a mission where it doesn't, which is exactly why we are in places around the world and in places here. You can think of Joel St. Clair planting in Washington, D.C., or you can think of missionaries overseas or our projects in India. And so while we see that God's vision for the future informs our participation in his mission, we would be letting ourselves off the hook. We wouldn't really be vulnerable before Scripture or faithful with the text without also recognizing that there is a stern warning here. A warning that not everyone is going to participate in God's fulfillment of all things. Look with me at 21, verses 7 through 8. The one who conquers will have this heritage. And I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Mission is inherently challenging. When we are informed that the point that we're going to, you know, we said mission is knowing where you are, deciding where you're going, and being willing to make sacrifices and commit yourself to get to that point. When God's mission informs where we're going, when that gives us a picture of where we're headed, we recognize where we are and we say, oh, we've got a very long way to go. We're going to try to run in that same direction. But it's a difficult road. It is a narrow road. It is a road laden with challenge. And even... John, we know, is writing to Christians who are suffering persecution. They're walking away from the faith because they are paying a very heavy price and therefore are not participating in God's mission. And that is who John is warning. But do we tend to walk away from our mission for much smaller reasons? Reasons much less than actual persecution? Why is it that we find mission so hard? 
Notice that John addresses first the cowardly and the faithless. Even before he addresses those struggling with what might be considered worse sins, how are we participating in cowardice or faithlessness? Now, culturally, one of the things that sociologists are observing is that broadly we are a culture that's unwilling to engage in mission. It's one of the things you frequently read about in the problem of youth culture. Uh, it's one of the things that you frequently read about if you're reading any study of people who are struggling psychologically is a lack of mission in their life, a lack of willingness to commit to mission. Without any mission informing the story of life, life tends to be aimless. It doesn't tend to be rewarding. It tends to be haphazard and disappointing. There are a couple of uh, anthropologists out on the West Coast who made a, a fairly interesting inquiry in that the inquiry almost happened by accident. One anthropologist was studying a tribe of about 12,000 people in the Peruvian uh, Amazon, the Matsigenga. And another anthropologist at the same school was studying, studying families in Los Angeles. And they started to compare what they were discovering about the families in the Peruvian Amazon and the families in Los Angeles. This, uh, the woman, uh, Carolina Esquire, Esquerdo was the anthropologist who went to the Peruvian Amazon. And she made some interesting observations. She relays that it's about 12,000 people. They hunt for monkeys and parrots, grow yucca and bananas, and build houses that they roof with the leaves of a particular kind of palm tree. And at one point, um, the anthropologist decides to uh, accompany one family who's taking a trip up the river. It'll take a number of days to collect uh, the palm leaves that they need to roof their homes, roof their homes. And another member of a, a member of a different family, a girl named Yanira, asked if she could come along. They spent five days together on the river, and this is Isquerdo's observations of uh, Yanira's. She writes, although Yanira had no clear role in the group, she quickly found ways to make herself useful. Twice a day, she swept the sand off the sleeping mats. And she helped stack the kapashi leaves for transport back to the village. In the evening, she fished for crustaceans, which she cleaned, boiled, and served to the others. Calm and self-possessed, Yanira asked for nothing. As Cuerdo later recalled, the girl's behavior made a strong impression on the anthropologist because at the time of the trip, Yanira was just six years old. Now, as Cuerdo returns... Uh, to a college in California, is talking with her colleague, Eleanor Ox, who is studying Los Angeles families. And um, Ox made some of these observations in comparison. Uh, often the kids had to be begged to attempt the simplest tasks. Often they still refused. And on fairly typical, in a fairly typical encounter, a father asked his eight-year-old son five times to please take a bath or a shower. After the fifth plea went unheeded, the father picked the boy up and carried him into the bathroom. A few minutes later, the kid, still unwashed, wandered into another room to play a video game. Another observation. Another representative encounter from this study, which was a study done with cameras being placed in homes and filming every aspect of their lives. So an eight-year-old girl sat down at the dining table, finding that no silverware had been laid out for her. She demanded... How am I supposed to eat? Although the girl clearly knew where the silverware was kept, her father got, got up to get it for her. And this is, so, there's lots of reflection being done on this. 
And there are multiple answers being offered as to why some of this is occurring. But this is one of the more, what I consider, insightful comments by one of the academics studying this. Uh, she writes, Most parents today were brought up in a culture that put a strong emphasis on being special. Being special takes hard work and can't be trusted to children. Hence the exhausting cycle of constantly monitoring their work and performance, which in turn makes children feel less competent and confident so that they need even more oversight. Now compare that to the practices of the tribe in the Peruvian Amazon. Toddlers routinely uh, heat their own food over an open fire. Three-year-olds frequently practice cutting wood and grass with machetes and knives. Boys, when they are about six or seven, start to accompany their fathers on fishing and hunting trips, and girls learn to help their mothers with cooking. As a consequence, by the time they reach puberty, Matsugenga kids have mastered most of the skills necessary for survival. Their competence encourages autonomy, which fosters further competence, a virtual cycle that continues to adulthood. What is the point here? In contrasting some of the families in L.A. and some of the families of this tribe in the Peruvian Amazon. It's to raise this question. Are we coddling our children to the extent that they're actually being inhibited? That they're actually being prevented from participating in God's mission? When is the last time that you intentionally tried to raise your child in participating in God's mission? This is a convicting question for me. And you took your child along with you as you intentionally tried to share the grace of the gospel with a neighbor or a friend. Or when you took your child on some kind of small mission trip or encouraged them to going on some small mission trip or encouraged them to live with less so that they might have more to give to participate in God's mission. Are we actually engaged in these activities so that we're raising a generation that actually is very excited and very well equipped to participate in God's mission? Indeed we're not, but it's something that we're going to have to work at. And are we so busy and intent on our children being special by the way that America defines our children being special that we forget what it really means, what is really important is that they become like Christ. And in that, they will be more special than they ever could hope to be by any American definition of the term special. One other aspect, I think, in which we wrestle with cowardice and faithlessness is simply that, well, we're selfish. And this has more to do with with faithlessness, a lack in God, and that we're talking about God engaging this wonderful mission by which to redeem us. Do we really want to participate in that mission, or do we simply want the excusal, we simply want to be excused from sin and death and then go on with the life that we want to live? Right, those are two different stories. If we've been rescued by the death of Jesus and His resurrection, then we are owned by Jesus. And if we are owned, then our participation in His mission is not something that's debatable, but that becomes very uncomfortable because it requires of us to give up things that we love and cherish. And that's where we stall. That's where we pause. C.S. Lewis has probably put it best in an analogy, which again comes from the Chronicles of Narnia, but later on in the story, there's a girl named Jill Pohl And she comes to a stream by which the lion Aslan sleeps. And this is how the story goes. Are you not thirsty, said the lion. I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. 
May I, could I, would you mind going away while I do? asked Joel. The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I do come? said Joel. I make no promise, said the lion. Do you eat girls? she said. I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. I daren't come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step near. I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. When we come with, to the reality of being owned by Jesus and called to participate in His mission, how easy it is while recognizing our thirst to say, wait, what is this going to cost? What will be required of me? Can I perhaps be filled up by another stream rather than the stream that comes forth from the throne of God? To which the answer is no. It is a difficult place when we stand apart and are unwilling to come, where in rebellion we continue to cling what we love more than Jesus. There was a moment this week at our dinner table, and with this I'll close, that encourages me to continue to work at participating in the mission of God, and I hope continues, I hope encourages us as a church to work at that, because we have a long way to go. We were reading the story of uh, the temptation of Jesus, and at the close, so the kids, this is the Satan was offering some pretty sweet things. Kingship over all the kingdoms of the world. Filling your belly after not eating for 40 days. Doing a really cool trick. Right? Look at me. I can throw myself off the temple and, and, and God will provide angels that will protect me and minister to me. Right? Really cool opportunities. I said, did, did Jesus take any of them? And No! Well, you know, what was God offering? And they had to think for a minute and said, well, ultimately, God was offering death. Jesus says no to all the kingdoms of the world. He says no to filling his belly. He says no to being protected by his Father. To commit himself to a course of mission which he knows will end in his death and the Father turning his back on him. And he does that to win you and to win me and to make the new Jerusalem where he can reign, where sin and death are removed. And that is the best of all endings, and it is the only true ending. Being formed by that, let us throw ourselves, individually and together, in participating in God's mission. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus Christ, we praise you this morning. You alone are true, and you alone are faithful and in you alone we have life. We thank you that you resisted all temptation so that you could lay your life down to be the perfect redeemer, to offer the perfect atonement that we might be rescued. Forgive us for being so focused on ourselves and pursuing the things that we want that we would not consciously, actively, daily ask ourselves how are we participating in your mission. Forgive us for not loving our neighbors enough to be caught up in that question. Forgive us for not loving you enough to be caught up in that question. 
We pray that you would challenge us and that by participating in your mission, we will know greater joy and peace uh, than we ever have because we're finally being who you intended us to be. We ask for your grace in this, in Christ's name. Amen.